loss helps us define our lives. By allowing our grief to matter, we discover our own strengths and embrace our authentic selves. Welcome to Good Grief with your host, Cheryl Jones. Get ready to be inspired to create a deeper life to make your time on Earth much more meaningful. Now, here is Cheryl Jones. Hello, I'm Cheryl Jones, and I want to welcome you to Good Grief, where we talk each week about the transformations that can come from loss. Today, I'm welcoming Jennifer Matthews, M.A. Jennifer is a spiritual cheerleader, writer, and facilitator of conversations relating to death, grief, joy, and optimism. After her beloved died in 2011, Jen became passionate about sharing life-affirming perspectives on loss through her writing workshops and presentations. Her TEDx talk, Death is Inevitable, Grief is Not, was released in October 2019. In this personal and unconventional talk, Jen invites us to break free from the limitations and language of a grieving process and change the way we think about and respond to the death of those we love. She combines life stories and tools with references to recent research on grief, opening up new possibilities for emotional well-being when navigating death. She's the founding member and active organizer of the Ashland Death Cafe and the Living Dying Alliance of Southern Oregon. As part of the community outreach and education team of the award-winning film Death Makes Life Possible, she's facilitated conversations on death, dying in the afterlife in the U.S., the U.K., and Ireland. Jen's on a mission to shift cultural messages that hold us back from joy and to help people connect to the spirit of who they are. Jen lives in Mount Chasta, California, or wherever her camper van takes her. Welcome, Jen. Thank you, Cheryl. Great to be here. Great to be with you. We've, we have the unusual experience of having met in person, and mm-hmm. uh, it's it's very nice because I can see your face while we're talking. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Sometimes that's not true. Sure. Um, you know, if, uh, if you read my, my bio at the station, um, the, one of the last lines is um, she, she immersed herself in grief um, surprised by frequent moments of joy um, and and intersecting with your work, reading your work and, and hearing your perspective um, makes me realize that I don't define grief the way a lot of people do. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that the joy, joy moments, gratitude moments, all of that was part of, a part of grief for me. And then uh, something you wrote, and you actually put in the dictionary definition of grief, which is quite different from that. It's, you know, sadness, mourning, um, very negative feelings. Uh, so that explained a lot to me about, about what you're, uh, where you're coming from, mm. you know. Um, and so I, I became even more eager to talk with you because that's a point of intersection that all of that's that it's more are we moving <laughs> than mm-hmm. anything else, yes? Right, and some of it is, you know, it is linguistics, and I, I do believe language forms our lives and is really very significant, so it would be in- interesting to get into that discussion a bit with you today, too. Absolutely, yeah, I, I agree completely, and, you know, I realize um, uh, something I 
heard you talk about in in one of the interviews you've you've previously done was about people expect you to feel terrible and only terrible and you know the, the kind of requirement of of negative grieving <laughs> that mm-hmm. that is leveled against us but i would say i'm a little bit older than you even in my generation there actually is was more of a drop off like no one expected anything Mm. Uh, you know that you do, you have some big thing happen in your life, and it's going as in advance. Everyone assumes it will be life crushing, and your life's over. And then after it happens, you're supposed to be over it in three days. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, so uh, I think I think a lot of people have fought for the right to grieve, but I think you and I are talking about what that actually looks like, what that means. Maybe. Mm-hmm. Do, do you agree with that? Well, I think there's plenty of contradictions, right? Like in anything, especially something that is a deeper, more meaningful experience in life. So on one hand, I do think it encompasses, you know, it, to me, it's about the response we have to death. And part of my work has been changing the language um, rather than talking about grief and grieving and a grieving process. I've really wanted to see a shift in saying how we respond to death. And part of it's for exactly the reason you're speaking of, that grief has this idea of sadness and heaviness and heartbreak. And my experience was different than that. So while on one hand, it's important to have the permission to grieve, I feel like that's a very important cultural holding space. And at the same time, I'm here to say, I'd like there to be room for permission to respond to death, however that looks. And that might not include heartache and sadness, which doesn't mean something's wrong with me or (laughs) that I'm unemotional or that I'm unattached. It it could mean that I just have a different perspective of death or that I'm using my tools around emotional well-being or it could mean a lot of different things. So so I do feel like the distinction um, to me is important and it, it does inform like the joy that you're speaking of or the gratitude and all of those things that would come up in the period in which we respond to someone's death. Um, to me, those aren't grief. They're actually what they are, their joy, their gratitude, their connection. And um, clumping them together in this kind of umbrella of grief, I, I find limiting personally. I, I find that it, it's still... Mm, it still suggests some kind of expectation that we're supposed to feel a certain kind of way or sadness. So, yeah, I did resonate with that part, uh, especially in one particular, um, well, in several ways, but the one that most uh, was, was uh, persistent in my mind is that for, I'm going to say a few months uh, after my sweetheart died, I actually felt quite euphoric Mm-hmm. And uh, I was very protective of that experience because I didn't want it labeled denial. Yes. yes. I was not in denial at all. Um, I was not numb. I was not, you know, I wasn't mm-hmm. all these things that I thought people would assume that meant. I was rapturous. Exactly. It was a rapturous experience. And then I started having dreams where she was on another planet or, you know, (laughs) and so then there were other feelings about not having her body in this world, but um, those were manageable. I didn't Mm -hmm. find it troubling. I just had them and they, you know, as you talk about, I, the experience would come and it would go. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think that there's, 
there's treachery in other people's perception of your grief any way you go, right? Right. You're, you're too sad, you're too happy, you're too joyful, you're too, you know, you're doing it wrong, basically, mm-hmm. is what I hear from so many people in my office. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think that's probably a little familiar to you, that, that you know, kind of transcendent aspect, mm-hmm. too, of, of somebody dying maybe particularly uh, when there's been kind of a conscious approach Mm -hmm. to death, do you think? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I I feel like those things, they make such a difference and they matter. So I too, I really resonate with what you're saying about that euphoria. I mean, I had that when my partner Kate died, it was this huge, expansive opening. And I recognize that not everyone's dying process or moment of their death is like that for right. the person who's dying and for the person who is their dearest and nearest. So that carried me a long time. I, I mean, I feel like still today, it's one of the reasons um, having that beautiful experience has supported me continually for all these years. And those external things matter. You know, the external, like I had a lot of support. There weren't a lot of other stresses in our lives. Um, there was a lot of clear communication and not, not worries that some people have with resources. I mean, all these different things and then a beautiful transition experience. It matters. So then it's like, how do, Absolutely. We, how do we take that, these external things that other people might experience in very um, difficult, stressful ways, acknowledge that, wow, that adds another layer to the challenge of death itself, but then go back to what are the internal factors? You know, how, what are the ways I can strengthen and cultivate and care for myself um, to, to step up and use my tools, even in a situation of, of the death of my beloved. So, so I feel like there's so many factors at play, as you mentioned, the circumstances of death. And I, I do feel like I'm one of the fortunate ones in that respect. I, I agree with you. I mean, I, I wasn't thinking about it, you know, after 10 years of her, of, of her illness, I wasn't necessarily feeling lucky about that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, of course. Mm-hmm. At the very end, actually, I was, though, because mm-hmm. I felt as if um, I had had a lot of time to grapple. And I, I couldn't be absolutely, completely convinced that I was prepared, right. but, but I had been preparing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was very relaxed, actually. <laughs> maybe, yeah. maybe the most relaxed I've ever been, wow. weirdly. But, and are we ever ready? I, I mean, there is that question of we can we can prepare as much as we can. We can be ready, not ready. I, I don't know if we're ever really ready and really can know what that'll look like. I mean, my experience when my mom died, I didn't know if my experience would be similar or the same when Kate died or other people in my life have died. I think it is all a very particular and unique experience and that there are certain foundational aspects um, like perspective and how I how I look at life how I handle challenges in general those things that can support me you know on an emotional and spiritual level and I think also one thing I took from from uh, you know discovering your work and and from my own experience is that a lot of the misery that people describe is actually a resistance to what they're experiencing Mm-hmm. Um, for instance, a client uh, got in touch with me the other day, and she was desperately upset. Her husband died a couple of years ago, desperately upset. 
and and she was felt like she was going crazy and you know all of that kind of thing which is familiar some people experience that she said what do i do i said breathe take a bath do something you like you know mm-hmm. and i got a message a half an hour later i feel so much better she she just wasn't letting it happen mm-hmm. in a way it was it was the fight that was really making it hard. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you find that too? I know I you say 90 seconds is as long as most most uh, emotional experiences last. So that implies, you know, just feel through it in a way. Well, yeah, I think there's, there's a couple different pieces when you mention that. I mean, one is some studies that have been done that would indicate we have that biochemical surge through our bodies of an emotion that lasts about 90 seconds. Obviously, it could last, even if it lasts much, much, much longer than that. The idea that it's this visceral release that's coming through our bodies that doesn't have to do with um, our thinking about it Mm. or creating it or feeding it, but it's just allowing that to feel, release, move. And then the resistance perhaps that you're talking about would, would be to me, after that emotion comes up or starts moving, if our thoughts get in the way and our thoughts start focusing on, wow, this is really hard or this, this is um, so difficult or I'm not going to see this person again or this is what it means in my life right now in a negative way. And, you know, it's so subtle, right? Our thoughts just can, we're used to our thoughts taking over and trying to figure things out and make sense of things. But I think when it comes to the death of someone we love or to what would be emotions of grief, um, there's a tendency to feed that and to think that that's, uh, we're told like, okay, well, we really need to, we need to go through the grief. We need to feed that. My belief is we need to feel it and let it out and let it move, but we don't need to feed it. That we actually, once we have awareness, oh, okay, I'm actually, those thoughts are, are perpetuating my emotions. Do I want to continue along that track of those emotions? I've already moved it. I'm already noticing it. Now what? <laughs> and that's when we have a choice. I believe we have a conscious choice if we're willing to make it to, um, and again, neither right or wrong. We can choose to be aware that I'm going to stick with this and I'm going to continue to feel the difficult feelings and that's where I'm going to be for a while. Or I'm going to think about where, what presence does this person have in my life? What gratitudes do I have? What um, what have I learned from, I mean, whatever it is, or even just to let go of following the difficult thoughts, even that simple. So, so I, yeah, I, I would say that there, there's a resistance um, in a way that sometimes enlarges a feeling and emotion that's pushing against it instead of just allowing it. Sure. And I'm thinking of all the, uh, all the thoughts about oneself that happen, like uh, mm. what's wrong with me, that, or... Uh, all the kind of self-judgments or how can I, the guilts around whatever it is that's running through us, you know, um, yeah. really catch people up yeah. uh, quite frequently, I've noticed. Mm-hmm. And what's been interesting for me is in doing the work of saying, hey, you know, we, we often think, well, there's many ways to grieve. And I've reframed that to say there's many ways to respond to death and grief, meaning sadness or heartache. Grief is only one of the ways to respond to death, that that's actually created a lot of relief for people. I've, I've had many people over time say, wow, I felt so guilty when I, I didn't feel bad or I, didn't, I wasn't devastated when my 
dad died or when my best friend died, I actually felt really solid and peaceful about it and all of these emotions they didn't expect to feel and the guilt that they've carried some people for decades for not feeling bad. So mm-hmm. there's that end of it too. I think there's the, there's the guilt of how we um, are feeling. There's the guilt of feeling bad. There's the guilt of, of feeling joy. You know? <laughs> yes. so it's kind of like, how can we forgive ourselves? Right? Like how can we just forgive ourselves, forgive that life is temporary. I mean, that's to me, that takes it into the spiritual aspect of saying, all right, we live in a temporary world. We as humans tend to have this adverse reaction to the temporary nature of life. So can we just be with it and say, all right, I'm going to learn how to hold it all. Life is temporary. Physical life is temporary. And um, I get to make of that what I will. Mm-hmm. So the more we can encourage a range of emotions and encourage that it's okay to 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 move on, but moving on, I don't mean forgetting. I don't mean not having moments of missing someone. I really mean connecting, like mm-hmm. moving on from the absence. I don't mean moving on from the person, from the loss, from the death, but actually it's an interesting paradox. It's like moving, letting go of absence itself and focusing on the physical absence and saying, okay, I'm going to actually release the absence instead of diving into it so that I can begin connecting to myself, to this person, to what they meant to me, to the memories of them. Does that make sense? Complete sense. And I almost for myself want to go a little further that, Mm. Um, my relationships with people who have died, um, my beloved, this is the most true about, uh, I think because of the nature of those 10 years, probably. Uh, Our relationship hasn't stopped. It's not a memory Mm -hmm. process. It's a present in the now process. Uh, For instance, if I'm at work uh, and I get stuck, I'm not sure what to do next. I ask her. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, yep. and and something always happens after that, uh, and you could interpret that a lot of different ways. But but for me, that it's the ongoing presence of that relationship in my life, in a very different form. Absolutely, mm-hmm. but uh, I don't. I don't. Uh, she's her body's dead, mm-hmm. <laughs> but mm-hmm. but her as a presence in my life, not dead. Yes. Yeah, you're touching on, I think this is one of the key pieces for a lot of people that there's a cultural message that death is the end of a relationship, that, that that's it. The relationship stops there when we know, you and I know from our own experiences, that the relationship shifts, it changes forms, there's an expansiveness. And regardless of people's spiritual beliefs, there's ways to really, I think, connect very deeply to someone in completely new ways. And for me, that is on a spirit level. I do feel Kate's presence in my life, her expansion, like you say, like she'll make jokes throughout the day or she'll show up and say different things. And I think connection is the opposite of loss. Like when I feel mm-hmm. connection in those moments, there is, it is impossible for me to feel loss. And when I'm disconnected and I feel separate, 
it, it's really easy to just follow that train. You know? Absolutely. You know, it's time for our first break. But when we get back, I'd really like to talk about how your work with laughter intersects with this, because I feel that mm-hmm. strongly that it does, that mm-hmm. that's one of the ways you have to to get to that sense of connection. And that really interested me. So let's talk about that when we come back. Great. Sounds good. And listeners, you can find links to my website and social media at the Good Grief page at Voice America to get in touch with me in all the different ways that that's possible these days. And to find Jennifer Matthews, go to jennifermatthews.com. And that's M-A-T-H-E-W-S, just one T. Be back soon. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. What sets apart voiceamerica.tv from the other video content providers on the Internet? Choice and flexibility means that you can host your video content live or on demand on the main voiceamerica.tv channels through your own branded media player or your own private TV channel. We support multiple media formats, so all of your video content can be in one place. We offer a number of advertising and video packages. For more information, visit voiceamerica.tv. If you think you've seen online TV like this before, let us surprise you. Are you living a healthy and fit lifestyle? It's not just related to your physical well-being. It also means a healthier mind, confidence, improved health, stamina, and fitness. Talking with Tremaine brings it all to you. Host Tremaine Ellis, along with her husband and co-host David Ellis, will offer support, advice, guidance, and motivation to keep you in your best shape, both physically and mentally. Talking with Tremaine can be heard live every Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time and 3 Pacific on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Be sure to like the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel on Facebook. You'll find great health tips from the experts. Find out more about your favorite shows and talk back to our team. Search Voice America Health or click the like button under the player today. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1 866 472 5792. That's 1 866 472 5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. This is your host, Cheryl Jones, and I've been talking with Jennifer Matthews about her work with uh, expanding our possibilities in in uh, responding to loss. And before the break, Jen, um, I, I invited us to talk about your laughter practices, um, you know, that that are one of the tools you, you use, one that stands out and seems delightful to me for getting, getting kind of, for responding to loss differently. Mm-hmm. Um, I was saying over the, over the break to you that I, before I lived with someone who was ill for, you know, all those years, I didn't have a sense of humor and I couldn't be funny. Mm-hmm. And the longer she was, the longer the time went on, and I do think this is 
not just because time went on, it's because we were actively uh, immersed in, you know, living with that experience and living through that experience. I found my sense of humor, Mm. uh, which seems so paradoxical, but is what happened. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Life got funnier and funnier. Mm -hmm. Um, And especially Gallo's humor was particularly delightful. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So that we laughed a lot and um, our, our, uh, support network had to catch up with that. Oh, sure. Yeah. Uh, but they had a lot of time to do so. The people that were that had the hardest time is the people who missed the whole. They were too afraid to come around, and then they came mm. towards the end, and there we were laughing and oh. looking, <laughs> we were having a good time. And you know, <laughs> meanwhile, she's not getting out of bed anymore and stuff. So uh-huh. Yeah, that was shocking for folks. But the people who had been there all along kind of got used to it and incorporated some of it themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's my intersection with the experience of laughter. But I I don't do a a laughter practice. I I learned some about that from encountering your work. So could you talk some about that and how you use it in terms of responding to loss? Sure. Well, the laughter piece is a really essential part of my story because my partner, Kate, who had died, and I were both laughter yoga trainers and leaders. So for a few years, that's what we did. We helped people learn how to laugh and learn how to lead other people in laughter. So um, one note on that, because you mentioned the humor piece, is that in this, in, in laughter yoga, it's really about the breathing of laughter and about laughter as breath itself, but not about jokes or humor. So uh-huh. that to me makes a big difference because when, when we found the laughter work, laughter yoga, Kate was an easy laughter, she, laugher. She could laugh for 10 minutes about nothing with someone. And I would be the one sitting back saying, well, what's, what's so funny? <laughs> what's <laughs> am I missing? Like me? Yeah. Did I miss it? I was. And I, you know, I came from an activist background and as an activist, there's, you're focused on so much suffering and injustice in the world. So laughter seemed inappropriate. And it's not like I, I didn't laugh and have a sense of humor. It was just that it was very, intellectual and focused on satire and what was funny and sarcasm, I must admit. But with the laughter yoga practice, it's this body first response, or you could say mind, body, mind, where you're just choosing to laugh. So it's really as simple as sitting here talking to you. And if I say, wow, I'm going to, I want to really let myself smile all you do is make the decision to smile. It's the same with laughter. It's all about willingness. So if I'm willing to laugh, I can laugh right now. I can just, <laughs> you know, nothing's funny. And, <laughs> and it's contagious laugh. too. And it's contagious. <laughs> and honestly, before getting on the um, getting on the show with you today, when just even to move some kind of nervousness or stress, I will choose to just start laughing as part of my practice. But the key to me, it's very interesting. The the key to me is the willingness. So if I'm in a moment of wanting to shift things or interrupt my thoughts or maybe get into a better space, better mindset, if I'm not willing, it points exactly to where I'm stuck. So there are moments where I choose to, I want to choose to laugh and it's, I'm, I'm just stubborn about it. You know? <laughs> I'm in total <laughs> resistance. I don't want to do it. I'm going to like see. And, but what that shows me, and this is where laughter has been a really amazing tool. I mean, there's so many tools, right? You can be walking in nature, playing music, doing yoga, um, 
like endless ways to, to find ourselves in our center. So for me, laughter helps me get into that present moment because anything else just falls away. And if I have the willingness to just start laughing, and I can do that with some little silly exercise. I mean, there's like rubbing laughter lotion on myself. There's just drinking a glass of laughter. There's all, I mean, you could go on and on like that. But if I make the choice to do it, it means that I can't hold on any longer. And so that to me is the key, the letting go that laughter allows, the letting go that's implicit in it. You know, you can't hold on to um, certain thoughts or emotions when you're laughing, even if it's really soft, just a kind of a quiet chuckle. Um, so that's the way I use it. And, and Kate and I used to have a daily laughter practice. I've gone in and out of it over the years. Sometimes I just set a timer to laugh for one minute and I time myself. I just laugh for one minute and that's it. And I will tell you after doing it for days and weeks and months over time, it significantly changes my life every time I start doing it again. So, um, so that's just a tip or even 10 seconds. Even if you set your alarm to laugh for 10 or 30 seconds, there's something about the no matter what I'm feeling and experiencing right now, can I let it go and just be in the moment and get into the present? It's interesting, though, because, of course, I, being a counselor, I've met a lot of people that are warding off their emotions as much as possible. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, of course, I suppose someone could use a practice like that to ward off, potentially. I'm, I'm not sure about that, but it's possible, I guess. But I don't get that impression from you, no. that you're trying to get rid of anything, you're, you're, you're just trying to respond to it. I feel like it's responding to it. And it's also making a choice before my, again, I I believe my thoughts are often what contribute to certain feelings and emotions, especially negative ones. So it's, it's catching it before it, it runs its own course. It's mm. not bypassing the sadness, but it's actually transforming it. So I do feel like there is a way to hold it both, to be able to be like, oh, I feel that, that's happening. I feel the frustration or the resistance or um, whatever it is. It can be sadness, irritation. It can be all sorts of things. And do I want to hold on to it or not? So I think the holding on to something is different than the just allowing it and feeling it. And laughter is a reset. It's just this instant reset. Nothing does it for me as quickly as laughter does it in the same way that a walk in the woods might allow a reset for me, but might take a little longer because I have to get in the car and go to the woods and take the walk. And then I can feel myself finding my center. Laughter as a practice just instantly resets. And then it lets me start over in the moment. So in some ways, it's a mindfulness practice. It's okay, let me reset this moment. Let me remember that every moment is a new moment. And I have choice in that. And how do I want to be in this next moment? I can always go back to the feelings of frustration or sadness if I want to, right? <laughs> you know, <laughs> can always pick up where you left off. Um, so it's almost like clearing the palate. And I haven't mm. used that analogy before, but in some ways that that's what it is. Mm, for sure. Um, so there's laughter. What, what other types of things would you say you most use to respond? Well, you mentioned walking uh, in nature. Um, and you live in a beautiful place that 
is probably facilitated by I where do. you <laughs> It definitely helps. I'm on the road a lot, but I do like to be in beautiful places. I, mean, I think many of those things I mentioned, meditation, uh, movement, yoga, listening to music, singing, I mean, we all do it in different ways. So I think it's important for people to find their own way. And, and to me, it's all about connection. Again, it's about connecting to mm-hmm. myself, to the moment, to what's alive in me. And I think we can do that in different ways. I mean, one of the tools I use, and this gets back to what we were talking about at the beginning, is awareness of where my focus is. So in those, in moments of, um, that are maybe less than optimal moments, or I, I feel my energy dropping or being in more of a difficult, challenging space, I I have created a practice over these years of asking myself, where is my focus? Am I focused on absence or presence? And that is a key piece. I started doing that particularly around Kate. And when I would feel missing her, I would say like, where is my energy? Where is my focus? Am I focused on, are my thoughts going toward her physical absence? And then I'd have a choice point to stay with that or focus on her presence. And I've found that I use that practice in my daily life that has to do with other things. I mean, it might be um, maybe something I didn't get to do. I'm having a little bit of FOMO because I didn't, I missed something or there's a friend I didn't see or I just, it could be anything. I missed an opportunity. Whatever is not what you wanted. Exactly. (laughs) Whatever is not what I wanted. And saying like, yeah, where is my focus in this moment? Where am I putting my energy? Oh, okay. I'm putting my energy on what I don't want. I'm putting my energy on the, the lack of, do I want my energy to be there? Likely my answer will be no. And then in that moment, I have a choice of where I refocus my energy. So, so that question has been one of my number one tools for many, many years now. Mm. Um, yeah, this, this is a little bit of a tangent, but I was just thinking of this and I'd, I'd love to bring this up. Um, one of the things that I found really interesting, so when we're talking about like what are the factors that contribute to emotional well-being, especially dealing with the death of someone we love, um, there have been various studies over the years. George Bernano is um, a, a professor at Columbia University who has done some amazing work, wrote the book, The Other Side of Sadness, recently revised, by the way, just a few months ago. It's one I recommend. Um, but one of the things he found is looking at how optimism supports us. And if you're a more optimistic person and how you can learn optimism, that that's really helpful. I feel like I've always had a natural optimism And um, studies over the years that have looked at optimism have really shown that these are skill sets that anyone can advance. So the point I want to make now is that Martin Silgman, the um, man who started positive psychology movement over the Mm -hmm. years, one of the things he said was that the skills of becoming happy turn out to be almost entirely different from the skills of not being sad or not being anxious or not being angry. And I've just been obsessed with that thought lately. It's like, oh, wow, the skills of being happy or being peaceful or being in our joy are different from the skills of not being sad. (laughs) (laughs) That makes makes so much sense. It's it's huge. How I would linearly describe it, but... uh, because, uh, well, it does connect with the, uh, something I heard about recently that the, the brain does not fully register the word not. 
Mm, mm, it is like that. So, so if you say, don't be sad, right. the brain hears, be sad. Yeah, and they used to say that just about dogs, right? Isn't that kind of the joke about dogs? Yeah. But it's, it's, so it's not just about undoing. It's not about, okay, we, here's our grief. How do we transform it? It's not about undoing or combating sadness, grief, anxiety, depression. That's important. It's important to be able to undo that, to learn how to transform it. But simultaneously, we also can learn how to be resilient, how to be joyful, peaceful, optimistic, grateful. And that's a separate process of skills that we go through. So to me, it's like, oh, it's really valuable. It's really valuable to have the books and workshops on joy and on, on um, these positive emotions rather than the quote unquote overcoming grief and sadness, which is a really different thing. Very different thing. That's mm-hmm. a good way to think about it. I'm, I'm also kind of thinking I, I, I'm this is this conversation is is making me very reflective on, you know, obviously every week I talk about what changed in other people's lives and in my life um, through confronting loss and death. But uh, I was just thinking one of the major things that changed for me was belief in myself, mm. uh, that, that I could do what needed to be done. I would say that's the biggest contributor to my resilience of, of anything that happened in that time. Oh, this is doable. No matter what happens, uh, I have within me what I need to, to uh, walk through that. Mm-hmm. And um, it feels to me that's a little bit to the side of what you're saying, but also very relevant to it because without that confidence, I will tend to uh, not employ the skills I have. I'll tend to descend I'll t- you know I won't be able to use what I have because I'm not thinking about what I have I'm not I'm not right. aware of it even does that resonate right. with you it does resonate with me and I would even uh, to, to go a step further with that I think part of the cultural conditioning is that when it comes specifically to death and the death of someone we care so deeply about that we're taught to not use our tools that we're taught that it should be exempt from that. And again, this is, you know, I, I think we could have a deep discussion on that and spend hours really kind of unpacking it. But there is a place where um, remembering to use the tools we have that we use in all the other areas of our lives, remembering that resilience and the confidence you're talking about that, okay, I can do this, I can get through this, that that does even apply to the death of a loved one and that it's not bypassing or repressing our emotions or um, the challenges. It's actually stepping up and stepping into a healthy, well-adjusted emotional place. And that that's not a negative thing. Like there's a difference between bypassing our emotions and actually utilizing what we know as humans to be in our strength and our power and our emotional well-being. Hmm. I remember I interviewed, I'm, I'm blanking her name right now, but I interviewed uh, a woman who'd been a researcher on resilience for a couple of decades, and then her son died. And um, one thing she said that had a big impact on me is she made a uh, bargain with herself right away. She decided right away that every day she was going to have three moments of joy. Mm, Wow. And it took a lot of effort, as you can Mm. imagine, (laughs) you know, because her son was young, it was sudden, all of that. Mm -hmm. But just that 
she counted that as one of the biggest contributors to navigating that time in her life. Mm-hmm. That simple commitment to something she already knew about, right? Right. But she could have just let it go. Why would I do that when I've just lost my son? But she didn't let it go. Yeah. Um, kept it active. Mm-hmm. That that may be part of what you're talking about. Yeah, I, th- I absolutely think that's related. It's having that awareness. And again, the willingness, the willingness and choice. She had a willingness to have three moments of joy in her life. And so she then chose it. If we don't have that willingness, um, it's probably not going to happen. Yes, but, you know, also I, I have to put a word in for all of the knowledge she had watching other people mm-hmm. face those types of things, you know, that we do learn from watching. Absolutely. Yes. Yes. <laughs> you know? yes. And that's and, why it's so important to have these conversations, right? Because there's so much that we learn from each other and our experiences and sharing them. Yeah. Absolutely. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. So are there other things you would like to um, emphasize in, in how you keep yourself responding as opposed to reacting is one way we could put it. Hmm. Well, I guess for me, a lot of it is perspective too, of, of having a perspective that death itself for me is neutral, that we put these labels on it of being good or bad, that, that death is a sad and horrible thing, but really death is a neutral thing. All of us are born, which means all of us will die. And remembering that for me is really it's really essential. I I do believe it's shaped my experience because that acceptance of death is part of the life cycle and practicing that and catching myself, you know, catching myself when I have certain reactions, as you say, rather than Mm. really having an aware response to something around me, any kind of loss, really. Um, I feel as if that deserves longer than we have because it's time for a break that Mm. that idea of our perspective on death itself Mm -hmm. uh let's come back to that when we're when we're done with the break okay great and listeners you can find both of us during the break uh i'm at weatheringgrief.com and the good grief host page jennifer matthews is at jennifermatthews.com with one t be back soon Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Healthcare has been a major part of news stories today with one thing that has been consistent. Inconsistency. Both healthcare providers and patients have to work around and get used to a constantly changing set of rules and issues. Nurses have historically been left out of this decision making. Listen to Once a Nurse, Always a Nurse, exploring the world of nursing with host Leanne Meyer. Health professionals, we invite you to share your ideas and experiences while listening to experts in various areas of nursing. Listen Mondays at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Health and Wellness. Over 20 million people in America struggle with substance use. This impacts both the people who are using and loved ones who are trying to help. Still, there is hope. Tune in to the Beyond Addiction Show with host Josh King. You'll hear from experts and get the real information you need to understand and assist in change. Change can be hard. It doesn't have to be confusing. 
Tune in every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time and 1 p.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Health & Wellness. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1 866 472 5792. That's 1 866 472 5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. I've been talking with Jennifer Matthews about her. the tools she uses to respond to loss and make choices about which direction she goes with it. And uh, before the break, Jen, we were just beginning to talk about our perspective on death itself, mm-hmm. uh, which, you know, I'm uh, <laughs> one of my kids said recently, you know, mom, not everyone wants to talk about death as much as you do. <laughs> <laughs> My family makes fun of me, but um, but I actually think it's very enlivening most of the time for me. Me too. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, you know, I'm I'm on this little app called We Croak mm-hmm. uh, that I don't know if you've heard about it, but five times a day it triggers me to read a quote about um, something related to death. Um, it might be actually directly about death or it might be a, about um, living full, full on given that death exists. You know, there's lots of different direction, directions it goes, but it refers to a society in which uh, it's thought that thinking about death five times a day leads to a, a happy life. Mm-hmm. Um, I, 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 I can kind of subscribe. I have to take a, a, a break now and then. From the app, but mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it does have some resonance with me that the more we kind of face that in our lives, the better. Yeah, and the name—I mean, even the name "We Croak." I mean, that's something that in um, in my TED talk I tell a story about this idea that everybody croaks, and and Kate, my partner, starting to say on the phone to people, "Well, you know, I'm going to croak soon." And there's just that that tender place, right? Of of being irreverent and being light and also, you know, not wanting to be dishonoring of the, the weight of it all. But I do think like the we croak and just being like, you know what? We do croak. We all do. We all do it. <laughs> we all do it. And to me, um, w- without making that, you know, not trying to be, um, not trying to just gloss over it as if it's not a, a very meaningful, deep and sometimes challenging process, but having a perspective of this is what happens and it's okay and can we embrace that? I feel like if we embrace death and embrace that it's it's part of the life cycle, it can really open up that window like you're saying of like how can I live more fully now? I mean, the more I focused on on death and dying work over these years, the more and more I've been in touch with my life and what makes me feel alive and all the things that I want to be putting my energy toward and it certainly um, brought a just a brightness and a lightness, which is so uh, so counterintuitive for people who haven't experienced it. But mm. uh, you know, every week I talk with someone who who would agree with that statement. 
Yeah. And at the death cafes that I'm part of facilitating and organizing in Southern Oregon, people come, they're new, they have an experience sitting in circle and just talking about whatever comes up around death. And almost always, I would say everyone in the group leaves feeling lighter. So what is that? And I think some of it's just being able to express and sit in circle and know, wow, these other people are willing to speak about something that we're told not to talk about or that we don't talk about. And it uncovers like conversations matter. It's so important to be able to have clear communication and express ourselves and be witness to each other. Not be alone. And not be alone. Right, right. <laughs> you know, and that's part of that. the purpose of this show, you know. Yeah. We, we have these experiences and they need to be spoken. They need to be shared. Right. And that isn't exactly the way uh, society is organized necessarily these yeah. days. Yeah. But but we can do it. <laughs> we can do it. And and the other piece that's coming up for me too, in addition to that connection or that perspective around death is um, for me, being reminded and tapping into that which never dies is it's absolutely essential. It's paramount for me. And I, I feel like I didn't mention it earlier, but I think that is a really huge part of my regular and daily practice. Mm. And again, like for me, it is a spiritual practice, but finding that place in myself of what is it in myself that what is that which never dies in me? And if I can find that stillness in myself then I can relate to it in someone who is no longer in their body anymore. It's reminding me of a teacher I had. He's another guy that shows up in my, in my office a lot. Mm. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. And, and uh, he had this idea about different um, aspects of us that can get injured. Uh, but the, the spiritual aspect only had one injury and that was the illusion of separation. Yes, yes, that's so true. <laughs> and that's what it, I mean, that this is where it's the perceived, I mean, I, my big question is, is that where the sadness and the heartache comes from when someone we love dies? Is it this perception or illusion of, like perception of separation? I mean, obviously there's a physical absence. The physical body is gone and we need to adapt and adjust to that. But beyond that, I think it is merely a perception because like you said, the relationship continues and there's a connection that can continue if we choose. So how do we move beyond separation and find connection? And maybe there's an aspect too, because uh, the one thing I decided in advance of of, um, uh, my sweetie dying was that I couldn't know exactly what was going to happen, but I was going to support myself no matter what. Mm. Uh, that whatever I needed, if I could get it, I was going to get it. You know, uh, I was going to take excellent care of myself. I, you know, all these all these things. I wish I could be uh, uniform about uh, in in my everyday normal life now. Right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it it led to a very peaceful uh, relationship to life. To just to mm. to say, whatever it is, I can do it, and I'm going to support myself. You know, right? <laughs> Simple yeah. things like that. Um, people die, and people and and people lose people. It's obviously doable. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, right? You're not the first one. Not the first one. Won't be the last. And how I do it is is not. I can't possibly know, but I will. Yeah. You know. Those kind of agreements with ourselves to say yes to experience. 
right? Well, yeah. what I love about that is that to me, it, it takes it takes the the response to death to a different level because I, I find that what happens is there's this kind of grief soup um, that is anything, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm struggling with this, I'm struggling with that, that we just assume, oh, that's because this person in our life died. And it's because it's grief. It's what we tend to call grief when we're struggling with that situation. But really, like you say, if there's these certain needs that need to be met, and then we we discover ways to meet those needs. Like if we're feeling like we're, we're needing companionship and can we find that in, a, in another way or we're feeling... Um, whatever it is, disappointed or worried or needing touch or like, is there another way we can meet those needs? Then it it separates it from being the only person to meet the need was the person who died. I mean, obviously there's going to be some things that are true in that way, that this person in our life who died, they are uniquely in our life and there's that. But then aside from that, there's a lot of other things we feel that we can meet in other ways when someone dies. Yeah, I think probably the biggest thing that was irreplaceable was having a co-parent. Mm-hmm. But, you know. Yeah, some things you can't most replace. Other, most other things were, right. you know, actually meetable. Right. Uh, and just having that agreement, you know, one thing that came to my mind just now, though, is that people continue to have an expectation. Like, I'm very easy talking about the fact that she died, you know. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so I'll say it to somebody I hardly know. Mm-hmm. Almost without fi- out fail, they'll say, oh, I'm so sorry. Yes. And that has no relationship to my experience now. She's been dead almost 25 years. Mm-hmm. And so I'll typically say, well, thank you. I'm mostly grateful. That's usually my response, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but, you yeah. know, it's, it's, hard to, it's hard to not fault people for their caring, of but course. also say, um, that's not where I am. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, to your point about just the cultural expectations on grief, we, we also need to let people move forward from it and be in a different place. And that doesn't mean yeah. that I never see someone on the street that looks like her and say, ah, <laughs> you know, uh, it doesn't mean those experiences quit, um, but they're just uh, just a part of my life. Yeah. They're, and they're to me, too, problem. it shows that it's that love, too, that this there's another cultural message that says the more we love someone, the more we're going to grieve. And grieve meaning in that sense, meaning feel sadness or feeling the heartache. And that hasn't been my experience. I feel like the more we love someone, the more I've loved Kate or my mom, it actually transcended the sadness somehow. Now, I know that's not going to be the case for everyone, but there is a real beauty in that. And um, I think where we are now is a real testimony to that. doesn't mean that we didn't love these people deeply, deeply, these women in our lives, so, so I'd love to see us move beyond that concept too. <laughs> well, for one thing, uh, regret is is very, very difficult. It in, is in grief, and mm-hmm. I have absolutely no regrets mm-hmm. when it comes to her. Yeah, so that whole really layer hasn't hasn't really existed for me. Of, um, and there are plenty of mistakes we made over the lifetime we knew each other, but I don't regret anything. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, yeah, and that's a life skill, right? I think that's a life skill that we learn and we can apply to many areas of our life, including the area around the death of someone we love. So, 
Yeah. That's a great place to stop for today. Mm. Thanks so much for a wonderful conversation. Thank you, Cheryl. It's been lovely. Yes, it has. And to find Jennifer Matthews, you can go to jennifermatthews.com. Remember, that's just one T in Matthews. This has been Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. I look forward to being with you again next week for another meaningful conversation. Thank you so much for joining us for Good Grief. Please come back next Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Cheryl Jones, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a meaningful week. Abre mi corazón.